Many of you probably are acquainted with the author C.S. Lewis. He's written a number of books. And one of his writings, a book that was called Screwtape Letters, it's kind of a fictitious, but it's an analogy of the spiritual life. And he's talking about uh, trying to give us a portrait of what's happening in the spiritual realm. Growth and development also just to hinder people from coming to faith in Jesus Christ. In one of the stories, he tells how uh, Screwtape, the older demon now he's basically telling of a time when he almost lost one of his charges in other words this man had shown up at the British Museum he was sitting in the library he was reading religious literature which probably didn't make screw tape very happy and he began to reflect on eternity and what's going to happen in the future and he's starting to think down a spiritual track and screw tape panicked he, he knew he had to do something so he got him to think it's lunchtime how many know that there's always a distraction? You're going in the right direction, something comes along. He wanted him off that train of thought. And so the guy said, hmm, I think I'm hungry. And so as he steps outside of the library, uh, as Lewis continues to write, he said, once he was in the street, the battle was won. He said, I showed him a newsboy shouting about the midday paper, and then the night, a number 73 bus comes roaring past, and before he reached the bottom of the steps, uh, I got him into an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas may have come into his head when he was shut alone in his books, a healthy dose of quote-unquote real life was enough to show him that that sort of thing just couldn't be true. In other words, as he got out into the real world, that was the real life. And what he was doing, thinking about eternity and spiritual things, quote-unquote, wasn't the real life. But how many know that is actually the eternal life? That's the transcendent life. That's the life that we're all being confronted with. And yet so often we allow the immediacy, the urgency, the tyranny of the moment to keep us from thinking about that which is eternal. And that is so powerful. We need to realize that there's a tremendous battle going on for our souls. Now, it's not just in our minds. That's part of it. But it's also in our emotions, and it's also in our will. You know, knowing to do the right thing and not doing it is, you know, the Bible says that's a sin. And actually, it's hindering us from really developing as a believer. So my questions today are, how can we kind of fend off such spiritual darts of the enemy? How can we overcome these kind of temptations? How can we grow strong in our faith? How can we develop and become what God's calling us to become? And I believe it only happens as we grow in a relationship with God. And the key to a relationship is the idea of communication. Isn't that true? I mean, you cannot have a relationship with someone unless you're communicating with them. And I'll just tell you, you know, a lot of times when we think of communicating, we think of one word, prayer. The unfortunate part is some of us, we think prayer is communicating with God. And that's the entirety of it. Let me just point out something. If we're doing all the talking and God isn't getting a word in edgewise, what kind of a relationship is that? Now, how many have ever had a conversation with somebody and they did all the talking, you know? And you're sitting there listening, and they're just unloading. And afterwards, they walk away and go, wasn't that a great conversation? <clears throat> and you're all chuckling because you actually know that that's not a real conversation. That's a dialogue. I mean, a monologue. That's not even a dialogue. That's like preaching, you know? It's just one-way street, you know? There's no real connection. That's scary sometimes. Now, that's okay if we're, if we're a lecturer or we're preaching or we're teaching. You know, there's not as much of a connection. Though I think 
The best situation is when there's a dialogue. Because now we know we're communicating. Because I can say something here and you don't get it. But when we sit down and talk and we work our way through it, I understand that you understand what I was trying to communicate and vice versa. That's very powerful. And so if we're really going to communicate with God, we have to add another additional ingredient into the picture. It's not just me doing all the talking. It's also I'm listening to what God has to say. And one of the cues of hearing God's voice is found in the scriptures, the Bible. So, you know, I have to almost take my Bible. If I'm really going to communicate with God, is take my Bible. And then as I'm reading, I'm praying. Now we're having more of a dialogue. And actually the scripture begins to shape how I'm even praying. That's very powerful, isn't it? That changes things, I think, very dramatically. Lloyd Ogilvie, who is a very famous pastor, he was also a U.S. Senate, uh, the, the chaplain for the U.S. Senate. Uh, he shares this thought of, you know, how do you know uh, when you're communicating with God? So he's trying to clarify for someone, like, does he have a special pipeline to God? And he goes, no, of course I don't. And then he talks about prayer in this way. He says, no audible voice. Now, I've never heard an audible voice. Maybe some of you have, but that's a very rare thing. I think I've met one person in my life who said to me, I actually heard the voice of God audibly. And this guy was on a ship. He was a merchant mariner. He's probably in his 50s, and he had nobody witnessing him to him, and God spoke to him as he's looking up into the heavens on the deck of a ship. God audibly spoke to him. And that was the precursor to him becoming a believer. Very interesting guy. I actually went to Bible college with him. Now, for most of us, that doesn't happen to us. And so if you're expecting God to audibly talk to you, you may, don't hold your breath. It may not happen that way. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, it's usually an echo in our soul, a fresh thought, an insight, a wisdom, a conviction from ancient truth. But more than that, a communication from God comes. He says, as I read scripture, take time for meditative prayer, listen to people, observe the Almighty's signature in nature, and live in depth in life's challenges. As he goes on to say, God whispers in my delight, speaks in my problems, and shouts in my perplexities. What is he basically saying? He's saying God, when he's speaking to us, uses a variety of means. And sometimes he uses other people. Sometimes he uses, you know, times of reflection in nature and all these things. You know, God can speak in a variety of ways. It's very important that we're paying attention. There's an openness that we're receiving what he's trying to say to us. I've even had God speak to me through unbelievers. How many have ever had that happen? How many have ever been rebuked by God through an unbeliever? Now, that's an interesting experience, you know? And that, can God do that? Well, of course he can. If he can rebuke Balaam through his donkey, he can rebuke anybody through any means, Right? So are we listening to God? I think there's a lot more safety when we realize that God speaks to us. And one of the ways is primarily in community. And one of the dangers is if we become totally you know, individualistic, God's talking to me and I don't have an, any sort of accountability or relationship with other people, I can go off on the deep edge. And I've met people who have done that. It's very scary. So I like to live in community. I think there's a safety there. And I think the scriptures teach that. So... One of the ways that God communicated was he came to earth and became a man. And Jesus Christ, his primary means of communication was through a literary genre called the parable. How many know that? And parables are very interesting. And we're going to look at a parable today, and it's probably the one that helps us understand many of the others. And it's found in Mark chapter 4 and verses 1 through 20. Now, 
one of the things about this parable is the parable of the sower and the seed. And I want to say something about seeds. Do you know seeds have life? Seeds have powerful life. And listen to what Peter writes regarding God's word. He describes it as a seed. He says, for you have been born again. In other words, God has done something. A seed has impregnated your life and you've come alive. You know, that's what happens when we become a Christian. And he says, not of perishable seed, because all the seeds that we have on earth, they're going to perish one day, right? You know, they're going to they're germinate and then become a plant and then they're going to reproduce. But you know what? We are born again of an imperishable seed. That seed is going to live forever. When you and I receive Christ, we're receiving a seed. We're receiving the word. It be, becomes a fully developed Christian life. It's very powerful. And he says, through the living and enduring word of God. So now... Isn't that exciting to us that we have a book called the Bible, which is God's word, which is a dynamic, active word. And when God's word comes, it has the power to change our lives. And when we think of transformation, I want you to think of it in these terms. When God's seed impregnates our lives, we become fruitful. But this is evidenced in these ways. We become more loving. Isn't the fruit of the Spirit is love. The results of God's work, his spirit is impregnating his word, and all of a sudden these are the qualities that you begin to see transpire. It says we become more loving, more patient, more kind, more joyful, more concerned about others. Even our desires begin to change. How many know that's true? You know, before I was a Christian, I had certain desires. After I became a Christian, my desires changed. I was really surprised by that. You know, all of a sudden I had a desire to go to church. Before, I had an avoidance complex. You know, it was boring. I had no interest in it. But now, all of a sudden, I'm enjoying it. I'm, I want to hear God's word. I want to get into God's word. I want to spend time with God. I want to hang with people who have a spiritual interest. My desires have changed. We become concerned about doing good things and right things. We become more self-controlled and more gentle. We're not as aggressive. We're, you know, it's not just about, I got to, you know, make sure I'm first in the line. We start backing away. And thinking about other people a lot more. Our interests change. We have a desire to please God and to be more than just to please ourselves. So these are a number of things that begin to happen in our lives through God's word. So when we look at this, we say, well, yeah, I know I can see that, Pastor, but I also see another problem. I also see that some of those things seem to be stunted. Sometimes I feel like I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not moving forward, and sometimes I even feel like I'm moving backwards. Anybody have that experience? You know what I'm talking about. So you've seen this, you've experienced it, but then you feel like, you know, I've regressed a little bit. Why is that? Why is there regression? And so I think that what Jesus is going to show us in this parable is why some people don't come to Christ, and secondly, why is it that some people regress in their walk with Christ? I think that's important to understand. How about you think that's important? How many actually want to experience the life I just described? You want to experience more joy in your life. How many like to have more peace? How many like to see more love flowing in and through your life? How many like to be more patient, more self-control? How many would like to, you know, be more concerned, to be less self-centered and more focused on other people? Isn't that, isn't that great things? How many want to see this really develop in your life? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's turn to Mark chapter 4 and look at beginning in verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and he sat in it and he went out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables 
And in his teaching, he said, listen. Now he's going to tell the first parable here. A farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still others fell on good soil, and it came, it grew, it came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, even 100 times. Then Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, why is he saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear? Weren't they all hearing him? Well, they may have physically been hearing him, but he's saying something beyond that. He's saying, I want you to understand what I'm saying, and I want this to impact you so that it changes your life. In other words, this isn't just about hearing words. You know, you can be sitting in a church hearing me speak and not get a thing from it. Not get anything. It's just bouncing off. You know, you're in another place. Your mind is in another place. No. He wants you to hear in your innermost being. He wants you to respond to what he's saying. I think there are two challenges to really understand the parables of Jesus. And the first one is the cryptic nature of the parable. What I mean by that is, why is it so hard to understand? You'd think that, you know, Jesus being the word, he'd be the clearest communicator possible. Why is he talking in this ambiguous form of speech? Why is he talking in parables? What's he trying to get across to us? You know, and then later on, you have the disciples coming to Jesus privately and saying, we're not getting what you're saying. And this is exactly what happens. Look at verse 10 of chapter 4 here. It says, when he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. In other words, what are you saying, Jesus? We don't quite get it. And you'll notice a little further down, it says in verse 13, Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? So obviously they were a little slow on the uptake. And to be honest, I'm actually happy they were slow on the uptake because I can just imagine us now, 2,000 years later, trying to interpret this parable. We'd have all kinds of versions of what it means. But you know, we don't have that option. Jesus now explains it to us beautifully. But before we get there, we have this little difficult passage we got to look at, and it's beginning in verse 11 and 12. Let's take a look at what Jesus is saying here. Uh, Jesus gives us some insight that only those who really have the right heart condition will understand and be impacted by the word. Look at verse 11. And he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. Let's stop. I've got to bring you back to chapter 3 for a moment. If you were here last week, I talked about two groups of people. Those that were in the house and those that were outside the house. Those that were getting what he was saying and those that weren't getting what he was saying. Those that were doing God's will as they heard the word of God and therefore were part of Christ's family and those who were physically a part of God's family but weren't getting it and really were outside in, the, in every respect, not only outside physically, but they were outside of the kingdom of God. So he's kind of dividing humanity into two segments, those who are in and those who are out. Now he's saying it again here. He said, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. In other words, this word secret is a Greek word, mysterion, where we get the word mystery. 
but it's in a mystery that's different than what you and I think. Usually you and I are trying to figure out what's the end. No, what Jesus is saying is this mystery can only be understood if you have the Spirit of God reveal it to you. It has to be revealed to you. So then he says here in verse 12, so that they, now he's quoting the book of Isaiah, the prophet. He says, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving. Do you know it's possible to look at something but not understand what you're looking at? Do you know it's possible to be hearing but not understanding? That's what he says. Every hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Well, that's a pretty powerful statement. In other words, if you, if you understand, you're going to get it. You're going to get the benefit of it. But if you're just listening and you don't understand, it's going to make no sense and it's not going to change your life. Now, let me just skip over a couple of things here. I'll come back to these quotes because I wanted to jump over. I think we have to understand something. The way Hebrew people think is a little different. See, we've got to understand how these guys are thinking. You know, how many know culture shapes the way you communicate? Culture shapes understanding. Now, the Hebrew people, F.F. Bruce is a New Testament scholar. He says this, we must remember that there is a tendency in Hebrew to express a consequence as though it were a purpose. Now, some of you are going, huh? What do you mean by that? It means just simply this. Jesus is saying, because you guys aren't getting it, it's not that I don't want you to get it. It's that what it's showing you is, as I'm talking your response is revealing something about where you're at. So it's a consequence. But when we read this, it almost sounds like it's a purpose. In other words, this is God's purpose to leave you in the dark. No, it's never been God's purpose to leave us in the dark. God came to bring revelation and understanding to us. But the reason why we don't get it, it's because of where we're at. Are you following it now? So what Jesus is saying is, when I'm talking to you, when Isaiah was preaching to his generation, their lack of responsiveness was because of what? The word of God wasn't powerful? No, it was because their hearts were in the wrong place. You know, Jesus is God in the flesh. He's talking to people, and they're not getting it. Now, how many go, that's just, the word of God is right there. The sinless son of God is right there among them and they're not getting the picture. Let me jump back up here. And I think here's what I'm trying to get across. Like the word mystery means a knowledge of God that cannot be attained by natural means. It's a great irony for although Jesus is the fulfillment of the mystery, people do not see it. Indeed, according to the gospel of John, it is precisely because Jesus tells the truth about himself that they don't believe. Actually, I'm quoting John 8.45 there. He said, you don't believe this even though I'm telling it to you. You just can't get it. You're looking at it. I'm telling you the truth and you won't believe it. Have you ever had that moment where you're telling somebody the truth and they're not believing it? That's pretty frustrating. Jesus was trying to tell them the truth, but they weren't getting it. It is the secret that the kingdom of God has come in the person and words and works of Jesus Christ. And this is a secret because God has chosen to reveal himself indirectly and in a veiled way. Only faith could recognize the Son of God in the lowly figure of Jesus of Nazareth. You can anticipate if God came to earth, you would not anticipate him coming in humility. As a matter of fact, you know, until 2,000 years ago, humility was never considered a virtue. Did you guys realize this? It was never considered a virtue. All of the ancient people saw humility as a weakness. 
It wasn't until Christianity came on the scene that we understand humility as a strength and as a value. It's a virtue. You follow? Okay, so these people would only see, you know, God coming in power. They would only think of God coming in dynamite, you know, like he'd be the greatest king, the greatest armies. He'd be the conqueror of the world. How does he show up? He's born in a stable from a humble couple, you know. Everything about Jesus' life is the exact opposite of what you think power looks like and what God looks like. It, it, It blew them away. They couldn't grasp it. They couldn't get it. That's what he's talking about here. But let me move on. You know, the good news uh, is simply this, is that outsiders can become insiders simply by responding to the message that God came into the world, died for our sins collectively, and that he rose again from the dead. You know, how can we believe in heaven if we don't believe in Christ? How do you think people are going to get to heaven? You know, I'm mind boggled every time I go to a funeral. People are all going to heaven. I'm thinking, how are they getting there? You know? You have to conquer death. And who conquered death? Jesus did. And the only reason you and I can conquer death is because Christ conquered death. And the only way we're going to get there is by having faith in him. And it's not just that we're going to get to heaven without a body. Listen, we are going to have Christ come back to earth and give us our mortal bodies back, though they're going to be repaired, thank God. You know, reshaped and refixed. But we're going to have an eternal body. We're going to live with Christ forever. And how do we know these things? Because the scriptures are revealing these things to us. And our culture has been impacted. And now we have a little residue of some of these ideas. And so we have funerals. Everyone's going, yeah, they're all in heaven. Well, let's get a right concept of the picture, right? Let me move on to the second challenge. And this is the longest one. It's the condition of the human heart. So how do people respond to God's word? And this is where Jesus shows us there's four groups of people. And I want to just zero in on these four responses to the word of God. Verse 13, Then, well, we already read that. The first group are those who have a hardened heart. It says here, the farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown into them. And Luke says it this way, that this is a parallel story from another gospel writer, Luke. He says, those along the path are the ones who hear, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. The reason why people don't believe is because Satan is coming and taking the word away. Okay? He's like a bird when he sees the seed on the hardened path He just drops down and eats the seed, and that seed has no power to germinate and produce fruit. So they're physically hearing the word, but they're not hearing it with the heart of faith, and therefore they're not responding to it. That's the problem. It's not that God's word is not powerful. As a matter of fact, in the book of Hebrews, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You know, I think so often we're like a little toddler. You know, how many have ever seen this? The little toddler puts his hands in front of his eyes. And then he says, You can't see me. How many have ever seen that? It is, it's actually very cute. You know, they think you can't see them because they have their hands in front of their eyes. Why do they think that? Because they can't see you. 
And therefore, they make the assumption that because they can't see you, you can't see them. And we all chuckle. We think that's beautiful. We see the folly in it. It's humorous to us. But you know what? I think we do the same thing with God. We put our hands in front of our face and we say to God, you can't see me. Come on, guys. As a matter of fact, we say God doesn't even exist. But listen to what the scriptures teach. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered, another translation says, and laid bare or naked before the eyes of him to whom we must give what? We have to give an account to God. Now, why don't we want to believe in God? Because if we do, we have to be accountable. And you know what we really want? We want to decide. You know, I always think this is so interesting. We get to be adults and go, I want to do my own thing. I want to make my own choices. I want to decide what's right or wrong for me. Come on now. Isn't that true? Here's the problem. The moment you and I decide we're going to be the deciding factor in what is right and what is wrong for ourselves, we've made ourselves God. And I'm going to tell you right now, when we do that, we are now in trouble because every decision we make has consequences. And so, you know what? Nothing has really changed. We're like the little child holding his hands in front of our eyes and we're saying it doesn't really matter. And God is going, yes, everything you're doing matters. Every decision you make matters. Every decision has consequences. And if you decide to to decide to say, you know, that this is okay for me to do and God says it's not, you're going to do damage to yourself and you're going to do damage to other people. That's just the way it works. It's always worked that way. It's always worked that way. That's what the problem was in the garden. They decided they were going to take an action in their own hands. They were going to play the role of God. They were going to decide what was good for them because they were being tempted to eat of a fruit that would give them the knowledge of good and the knowledge of evil. How many know once you've tasted the knowledge of evil, sometimes you can't go back? How many people have been bound in addictions just because they tasted the knowledge of evil? It happens over and over and over again. So the first group are like this. Notice I got a slide here. And some of you that went to Israel with me, you're going to recognize this place. This is Nazareth Village. And it really helps you understand the farming in that moment because you'll notice there's some sheep walking across this little pathway and you can see that there's grass growing. And, you know, like usually what happens is, in another slide later on, it'll show it out even better, they are built in terraces and you sow the seed, but some of the seed falls on the pathway. You'll notice that even some of the greenery is falling into the pathway and some of it's growing, some of it isn't. You know, seed can't grow there. We know that because it's hardened. It's not broken up. The soil is hard. That's why the seed can't penetrate. And that's why the birds can come down and eat the seed. Jesus is using a picture that every one of these people in his time understood. We read the story. We don't quite get it. But this is what it looked like in the first century. This is actually Nazareth. This is actually a garden, uh, a field. And they're showing you what life was like in that time. Now, I want to bring you to a story in the Old Testament. It's a very interesting story of a man named Pharaoh. That means the king. He was the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh of Egypt. The Bible says that when Moses came and told him to let the people of Israel go, Pharaoh said, who's, who's, who's your God? As a matter of fact, Pharaohs thought they were God. You see? And so he said, why am I going to do that? I don't recognize your God. I'm not letting these people go. And then the Bible says that God, you know, that Pharaoh hardened his heart 
In other words, he refused, he resisted God's word. He didn't listen to God's command to him. And so then God allowed some plagues to come out to Egypt to release the people. And then the Bible says, it's very interesting, it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now how did God, God harden his heart? Very simply, God allowed things to come into his life, but knowing the condition of Pharaoh, he knew that these incidences would only entrench him in his thinking. You know what's happening in our culture today? We're becoming more entrenched with unbelief. A lot of people are. I can see it. I've, I talk to people all the time. There's a hardening of the heart, and you can actually see that happening in many people's lives. Now, this is not only true of unbelievers. I think it's also true of Christians. We can regress. We can develop a hard heart. Uh, Lloyd Ogilvy, you know, basically says, what happens to a person to bring them to a place where he cannot hear God? When did he shut his mind, shut off his feelings, and refuse to discern and do the will of God? Our hearts get hard because of what people do to us and we do to ourselves. Now, what does he mean by that? How many people in this room, I want you to raise your hand. You've never been hurt by another person in your life. Raise your hand. All your hands are down. We've all been hurt by people, right? And what happens when we get hurt by people is we try to protect ourselves. That's a very natural response to pain. Isn't that true? Now, what is a spiritual response to people hurting us? What is the right response? Turn the other cheek. But I think that's, 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 a, that's a beautiful expression, but it's teaching us something deeper than just physically turning the other cheek. What does Jesus mean when he says turn the other cheek? We have to forgive. Listen, he's teaching us in his prayer to us every day. You know, forgive my trespasses or my sins as we forgive those who trespass or sin against us. Why is forgiveness so necessary? I'll tell you why. First of all, it releases you from becoming hard. Because when you and I become resentful, we become angry, we become hard, what happens is we're not free anymore. We're actually in bondage to that individual, that situation. We never move past that. We have an edge about us. And other similar circumstances come along and it reinforces that pain in our lives and we become even harder. It's to protect ourselves. It's the wrong approach. It's, you know, it, it's counterintuitive, by the way, to forgive people. Because the first thing in our mind is they don't deserve it. How many have thought of that? Immediately when somebody hurts me, they don't deserve to be forgiven. Right? Come on now, let's be honest. They don't deserve it. Hey, if somebody really hurt you, do you feel they deserve to be forgiven? No, they don't deserve it. They don't. Let's be honest about it. They don't deserve it. i got to ask a question. Does God, is God obligated to forgive you and me? Do we deserve it? Then why does he do it? Because he loves us, and he's chosen to do, give us a gift we do not deserve. I always tell people when they come and see me, forgiveness is the gift you're giving to people who don't deserve it. Write that down. You need to know this. If you don't practice forgiveness, you're going to get hard-hearted. If you get hard-hearted, you're not going to hear God's voice. If you don't hear God's voice, you're in trouble. You're not going to grow spiritually. You're not going to become the person I described earlier in the sermon. You can't be fruitful. You can't be loving. You can't be that person. It's not that you don't want to be that person, but you're going to get an edge to yourself. You're going to develop resentment and anger and bitterness and all these things that are going to destroy you. You're not going to get better. You're going to get bitter. And life is filled with problems, folks, as we're going to see here in a moment. 
Now think about, here's another way that hardness occurs in our life is when we don't act in obedience upon God's word. I'm gonna quote a scripture of people who, you know, it says that are hypocritical. He says, he's talking about false teachers. He says, such teachings come through hypocritical liars. Now let me ask a question. Who are, what, what, is, it, what is hypocrisy? It's when I tell you something but I'm not doing it. That's hypocrisy, right? When I'm telling you to behave a certain way but I'm not doing it, I'm a hypocrite. Can I just say something? Every human being is a hypocrite. Get away from this. Well, you guys think you're better than so-and-so, and you guys are hypocrites. No, 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 no. Every human being has a hard time living up to what they know. Isn't that true? Every one of us struggles with doing the right thing every single time. Come on now. Have you always done the right thing? No. So in a sense, we're all hypocrites. But here's what happens when we don't admit it. That's a problem. See, it's, it's another thing to be in denial about it pretend that we're okay let's not pretend anymore let's be authentic it says here whose conscience have been seared as with a hot iron in other words the part that God is trying to speak to our conscience has now been so hardened that God can't get through to us and so a lot of people say well I don't feel bad about that I say that just tells me how bad you are your heart is in a terrible shape Listen, when you are tender-hearted, when you're sensitive, that's when you're close to God. But when you're hard-hearted, you're not close to God. See, you have to keep a tender heart. Whenever we have a conviction we do not live out, we block, out, uh, we block our sensitivity to hear further truth. That's what Lloyd Ogilvie says. Listen, when God is telling you something you're not obeying in that area, God's not going to give you more. Okay? You want to get more from God, you have to obey what God's telling you right now. Then God will give you more. That's the secret. You have to live in obedience to what he's saying. Now, notice what happens when we have a blockage of sensitivity. Listen to what Ephesians 4 says. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. I've got to ask a question. Who are the Gentiles he's talking about here? Well, let me explain something. How many know Gentiles just is a definition for a non-Jewish person? Okay? That's how the word is generally used in the Bible. But let's give you a different meaning. Here's, here's the other meaning, and this is how this verse plays into it. A Jewish person generally is considered a covenant person. So he's basically saying this is a non-covenant person. He's using the word Gentile to speak of an unbeliever, a non-covenant person here. He's basically saying, so I tell you and I insist on in the Lord that you must no longer live as non-covenant people, as non-believers. And how do they live? In the futility of their mind. In other words, all of their ideas are just empty anyways. Because this life is fleeting. It's just very tra transitory. It's going to come to an end. You and I have to live with more of an eternal purpose in mind. You and I have to live a more transcendent life. You and I have to live beyond the moment. And then he goes on to say they are darkened in their understanding and they're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to what? Due to the hardening of their hearts. That's why people do not understand. They have a hard heart. So when you're talking to somebody, they're not getting it, spiritually speaking. It's because of the condition of their heart. Now listen to this. Having lost all sensitivity... They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. Here's two noxious weeds we have to deal with as a Christian. Number one, if we're not sensitive, we're going to become sensual. Do you think our culture is very sensual, by the way? It's totally driven by sex, isn't it? 
Isn't that sensuality? Of course it is. Here's the other one. The other, full of greed. I could talk about materialism. Or I'm going to use a better word. It's not so much things as it is covetousness. It's this constant hunger for more. Never satisfied with what we have. Materialism. That's what real materialism is. How many think that we're battling materialism? You think that's a noxious weed? I think it is too. And it's destroying us. Now, you think that things are bad, Pastor? No, I think things are neutral. I think it's the attitude we have towards things. If we're using things to help other people, great. If we're just acquiring things for what? To make a statement about who we are and our identity, then we're actually being destroyed by greed. We're being destroyed by this thing. And actually what happens is we end up spending more time going to work to acquire things. So that And, and who suffers is the relationships factor. And you know what? I remember years ago, B.J. Thomas sang a song about using things and loving people rather than loving people and using things. Do you think we have a problem with that? I think we do. See, all of these things come to bear in this situation. Let me move on to the second condition of the heart. Those who are classified as having a shallow heart. Look at verse 16. Others like seed sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecutions come because of the word, they quickly fall away. So Jesus is now giving us the second class of people. It's the people who start out quickly. They're happy, but they eventually fall away because two things come in to their path. Do you know it's easy to say, I'm going to follow Jesus. Look at all the wonderful benefits, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, this fruit of the Spirit, all this great stuff. But then a problem hits us. Life isn't working out the way we want it to. We run into trouble. How many know life is full of trouble? We're going to have trouble in this world, right? And so you'll notice in the second slide here I'm showing you, this kind of gives you more of the terrace look. That's a terrace. Notice the little pathway and the rocks. Now things are being sown inside there. So you can see that the ground in Israel is full of rocky soil. It's a very rocky country. I can tell you, I've never seen so much rock in my life. You know? And so when he's talking about this, these guys understood what he was talking about. They saw you know, life come up, but because there was no deeper uh, soil, the soil was too shallow that the plant could not thrive. And it just quickly died under the scorching heat of the, uh, of the, of the sun in that climate. Now, when it becomes hard, when, when, it, when, it, when serving God becomes costly rather than beneficial, a lot of people pack it in. How many know what I'm talking about? And a lot of people become bitter towards God when they finally say, you know what, why did God allow this in my life? Why did God allow this pain in my life? Why did God allow this sorrow in my life? I hear this over and over again. Listen to what James tells us. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. How many sit there, when you have a problem hit your life, you go, thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God. I'm so thankful for this problem. Well, no, we don't normally do that, do we? But why is he telling us to do that? Because he says, listen, these trials are actually testing your faith and it's developing perseverance. Now, how many here, you work out? You physically work out? You actually exercise? How many here exercise? Come on, okay, some of you, good. Now, some of you go, I'm allergic to that. <laughs> All right. But can I just say this about exercise? And I went back online this morning just to double check, make sure I get all my facts straight. I actually work out. You go, Pastor, you got a lot more to do. That's okay. I'm just trying to stay healthy. So I'm working out, and I read that actually what's happening is your muscles are receiving, when you're working out, you're getting little tears in your muscles. Do you guys know that? Your muscles are actually breaking down a little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. And then it has a little recovery time, and it actually builds more muscle. And you have to 
you have to tear something apart in order to build it up. Don't you guys think that's ironic? And actually, I was reading all the physical benefits of exercise. Man, when I was reading, I got motivated. I should go out and exercise this morning, but it's Sunday. I'll do it tomorrow. But, you know, yeah, I preach three times. That's my exercise on Sunday. But what I'm saying is simply this, that there's a benefit, all these great benefits to exercise. You know, if we knew what the benefits were, we'd do it. But how many know it's not always easy? And if you're really exercising correctly, sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's challenging, right? Your body's going, what in the world are you doing to me today? You know, I don't want to do this. And other times you get on a high and you enjoy it. Oh, yeah, I understand all that stuff. But I'm, I'm just explaining this to you. It's the same way in the Christian life. God has to allow us to experience resistance to our faith in order for our faith to develop. Otherwise, we're going to have lackluster, weak, pitiful little faith. We won't be able to handle anything. The people who are amazing are the people who have gone through trial after trial after trial and have trusted God and experienced things and can begin to shout and praise God. And when you see them go through a difficult time, they're not falling apart anymore because they've got spiritual muscle. They have matured. As a matter of fact, James goes on, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let me move on to say this. Trials not only reveal the condition of our hearts, they develop spiritual maturity. Uh, Conversion must affect the totality of our personality, our mind, our emotions, our will, and if any of these elements of our personality are unaffected, it will be exposed. That's why those who only have an emotional experience in Christianity fall away. They can't handle the challenges that are bound to come, like losses and hardships. And then there are those whose faith is only intellectual in nature. They've only been taught about it, but they've never experienced it. And therefore, when crisis comes into their lives, you know, they're in trouble. They've never allowed Jesus to address the emotional issues in their life. So emotionally, we are the product of our relationships. Parents, friends, significant others have shaped our feelings about ourselves and our life. The rock beneath the thin layer of intellectual ascent to the faith is made up of unresolved feelings, stunted emotions, and conflicting attitudes. And the impact of our relations brings hate, jealousy, rejection, and hurt, according to Lloyd Ogilvie, and I agree with him. These things can undermine our trust in God. Often we feel like we have to be in control. How many people feel like i got to be in control? Listen, when you have faith, you don't have to be in control. You can trust God. He's in control. There's the difference, you know. And then there are those who have a right understanding to whom God is and are emotionally free and healthy, but they're not willing to do God's will because they're trying to play God. That's an issue of the will. Let me move on to the third condition. I'm going to do real quickly these last two and then we'll be done. Third condition of the heart is the entangled heart. This is where we allow the things of our life to define our lives. Look at verse 18. Still others like seed sown among thorns hear the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word and make it unfruitful. This is that strangulating, noxious weed, see? I think we're living in a a very affluent society where the good things of life often keep us from the best thing in life. You know, it's really, you have to discipline yourself to pursue God in this culture because there's a lot of other things that are going to beckon for your attention. And we have the energy and resources to go after those things. But you have to say no to a lot of things in order to really pursue God. You know, I've already talked about, you know, not living just for the temporal things, but we live for the eternal things. Not just living for the things of this world, but living for the people which are the eternal element to life. That's why we've got to focus our attention on people and not things. 
And then there were the whole bunch of people who were worry warts. I hate to get into your space, but I'm going to do that today. Do you know, worrying over an aspect of our life is a sure sign that we're trying to accomplish our plans with our own power. Ouch. When we worry over people or certain situations, we can be sure that we've elevated the problem to first place and are not able to find adequate resources. To seek first the kingdom of God is to listen to his guidance on what we are to do and be. I would switch the order. Leon Morris is a scholar too. I'd put be and do. In other words, what am I saying? I'm saying simply this. You and I have to learn to trust God with our family, with our finances, with our health, with our children, with our grandchildren. What else do you have to trust God with? Your goals. We could go on and on. But some people are worried all the time. I'm going, why? Why worry about those things? Listen, God will get you to where you need to go. Believe me, he's more interested than you are. You say, well, I'm really concerned about my kids. God's more concerned about them. He gave them to in the first place. They belong to him. They never were yours. Get your hands off. Relax. Let God do his work in their life. You know, we come in and we try to rescue. Oh, boy. Can I tell you, stop doing that? You're getting in God's way. Sometimes he has to discipline his kids. We don't want him to do that, right? But let me move on to the last soil let's mention. It's the right kind of heart. I love this. Others like seed sown on good soil hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. Luke says it this way, but the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. How many see that key word, persevering? We don't like that word. That means... Having done everything I need to do, stand. Having done everything I need to do, trust God. I've done my part. I've got to relinquish control. I've got to just look, okay, God, I've done what I can do. You're going to have to do what you can do. Isn't that great? Do you know how freeing that is? What am I saying? I don't have to worry about the results. Here's the comforting part. Listen to what it says. When the seed of God's word lands on a good soil, on a good heart, What's going to happen? It is going to produce fruit. It is going to produce change in our lives. How many say, Pastor, I'm for change. I want to become like Jesus. I want to become like him. Hey, you know what? You and I need to guard our hearts. The Bible says guard your heart for out of it come the issues of life. If you and I have the right kind of a heart, you don't have to sweat. You don't have to strain. You just have to have the right heart. And the word will come into your soul and it'll start moving you and changing you and changing your thinking and changing your desires. And all of a sudden there's going to be a new confidence in God and a new patience and you're going to go, hey, I I think I'm going to just trust God with this one. I'm going to let God work out the details in this situation. And you're going to be shocked at how good God is. You know, but you know what we get in trouble is when we try to help God out. We're not, God's not moving fast enough. How many of you have ever had that experience? God's not moving fast enough. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. He's moving a lot faster than you guys are. And he's working on human wills. You know, we're trying to manipulate people. God doesn't manipulate. He changes the human heart. Let's stand today. I want to ask a question today. How many here can say, you know, Pastor, I have, God's Spirit is speaking to me today i got to get my heart in order. 
My heart has got to get in order. How many get that? I get it. It's about the condition of my heart. I got to learn how to trust God. I got to learn how to, you know, let God work inside of me. I have to begin to feed my soul the Word of God. I'm a great proponent of the Word of God. I, 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 I try to get people reading it every day. I try to get people meditating on it day and night. I, I believe that's the key to success in life. I believe you've got to start thinking differently. It only comes by hearing the Word of God. The more I read the Word of God, the more I get confidence in what God's able to do. I have great confidence in God. I have very little confidence in humanity, but I have great confidence in God. Because I've watched how he's worked through the pages of human history. It's amazing what he's done. He's taken all of us rebels down here and done something with us. That, to me, is amazing. That God could get a hold of my rebellious heart and actually straighten me out. God could take my wounded heart and heal it. God could change my confused mind and give me clarity of thought. God can give me purpose for living that I never had before. It's an amazing thing. And you're here today, and you're saying, you know what? I want God to change my heart. That's you today. I want God to do a work in my heart today. Just raise your hand. God's going to hear that cry. God will hear your cry. Say, Lord, help me. I want to have a good heart. I want to have a heart that when your word comes to me, I respond. I respond. I'm, I'm the most re I want to be the most responsive heart that's ever out there. I want to just do what you're asking me to do. I want to be tenderhearted. I want to be yielded. I want to be sensitive to you, Lord, and to the people around me. I want to walk in the Spirit. I want to be a person full of the fruit of what your word wants to bring, which is joy. I want to be full of joy. I want to be full of peace, God. I want love to exude into my life. I want love to flow through my life. I want to be a person that's walking in self-control. I want to walk in gentleness. I want to experience your grace in my life so that I can exhibit grace to people around me. I want to show your love and compassion to those around me. How many say, I'm up for that kind of a heart? That's what I want, God. Hear my cry, God, today. And Lord, that's our cry. Lord, change our hearts. Lord, renew our hearts. Revive our hearts. Break up the soil that's been hardened by Bitter disappointments, troubles, Lord, uh, people abusing and misusing us. Lord, I just pray that you would give us a spirit of grace and repentance and forgiveness. May it just exude from our hearts, oh God. May we relinquish hard feelings. And I just thank you for that, Lord. I pray, watch over us, oh God. Give us a tender, loving, compassionate heart. Make us, uh, give us a heart like your heart. Help us to see things as you see things. Help us to hear your voice speaking into our life. Help us to be quick to respond in obedience to what you're calling us to do. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, God bless you as you leave this morning.